Welcome to the Musician's Venture Podcast. This is a podcast focused on lessons learned from musicians' backstories, as well as from building successful careers in the music business. My name is Nick O'Brien, and I'll be interviewing artists and industry experts and offering insights based on events that Wisconsin Music Ventures has produced. On occasion, I'll be joined by Allison M., the founder of Wisconsin Music Ventures, as she and I will dive into topics relevant to the music industry. So let's get down to business. Musicians and music fans, this is Nick O'Brien, and welcome to this episode of the Musicians Venture Podcast. For this episode, I had the pleasure of chatting with Bob Wygant, who is the mandolin player for Dig Deep, which is one of Wisconsin's better-known string bands. The band formed in 2015 in Stevens Point during the rise of the Midwest's roots music scene. Since then, Dig Deep has had three studio releases, played more than 600 shows, and has become firmly established as an utterly unique and powerful force in the Roots world. Bob is also a music festival organizer, with his most well-known festival being Mountaintop in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, and he recently co-organized a new festival in Wausau, Wisconsin, called the Scotty River Bluegrass Festival, which you can learn more about by listening to the Musician's Venture podcast episode that features the festival. Bob is from Wisconsin's Northwoods, and he still lives there when he's not touring with Dig Deep, and he's definitely got that kind-hearted Northwoods spirit. Over the course of the conversation, we talk about his focus being on Dig Deep right now, which will play about 120 shows this year. He shares the reasoning behind the band working with a booking agent and how that's going. He dives into the story of how and when he started playing music, starting with the guitar and playing in his first band in Rhinelander, Wisconsin, through high school. And then he picked up the mandolin as a result of being in Duluth, Minnesota, when the string band scene was emerging there with the likes of Charlie Parr and Trampled by Turtles. He talks about the art of playing mandolin and how he learned to play it through weekly gigs at the Little Brown Jug in Minocqua. He reflects on his first string band called Ghost of Swinetown, which is how he got connected with the greater bluegrass and string band scene, and then led him to getting involved with a band called the Ditch Runners, which then evolved into becoming Dick Deep. He talks about the early days of Dig Deep, as well as the band's booking, songwriting, and recording processes. He explains why making music is such an important part of his life, and he looks back on some of the challenges in his life that music has helped him overcome, particularly when he was grieving the death of his friends. Bob shares some advice that has come from lessons he's learned along the journey of his music career, we talk about what success means for him and for Dig Deep, and his appreciation for the opportunity he has to make music for a living. We end the conversation with Bob talking about his sobriety from alcohol. He shares advice and support for others who are on that same journey, or even just considering it. Now, Bob is an awesome asset in Wisconsin's string band scene, both as a musician and a festival organizer. But more importantly, he's just a really great guy with an awesome and enthusiastic personality. This was a great conversation, and I hope you find it to be an enjoyable one to listen to. Thanks for sitting down with me, man. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm glad we get to do this. Yeah, me too, man. So let's set the table for the conversation. You know, obviously right now, you're a festival organizer. Yep. But what else is life like right now for you as a musician and music industry professional? 
Well, the festival that we're at right now, the Scotty River Bluegrass Festival, came about because I had to cancel Mountaintop Festival, which is a festival I started back in 2013. We've been doing every year. Had to miss a couple of years because of COVID, but that is the thing I've been doing for a long time that unfortunately didn't work out this year, but then this popped up as a great kind of fill-in alternative last-minute sort of thing. Aside from that, Dig Deep is my primary project. I do I do some kind of freelancing, sitting in with friends and stuff here and there. I live in Lake Tomahawk in the Northwoods of Wisconsin right now. So I've got some friends in that area that I, I'm lucky enough I get to, you know, team up and sit in with them on occasion. But other than that, it's it's primarily, you know, playing with Dig Deep and, you know, writing songs and, and playing shows. Like you, you don't have a, a day job. No, no. I took a job for a brief while. During COVID, I was working at a bait shop for a little bit to make ends meet. But other than that, I've been doing music full time since I want to say like 2012 or 2013 or something like that. So, wow, man. Yeah. That's yeah. really cool. It's been, you know, I had its ups and downs, of course, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. That's awesome. Yeah. How often is Dig Deep digging right now? Lately, but you know, we're, it's it's mainly kind of doing the weekend warrior thing, you know, okay. through the winter, which is pretty typical. It slows down a little bit this time of year. March is usually pretty slow. April will be a little bit slow. But I think, you know, grand total throughout the year, we'll probably do 120 shows, you know. So we're, we're, we're hitting most weekends. And then a few times a year, we're doing a few tours outside the Midwest, too. So we're not like hardcore road dogging it quite yet. We'd love to get there. Mm-hmm. But for right now, it's, you know, at least a couple of nights a week. And plugging in a few, you know, a few here and there, extra old again. And so 120 shows a year, they've been pretty steady? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we've had years in the past where we've, you know, pushed 150 or more. Okay. Just this last, uh, I think, I guess we've been with them two years now. We started working with the booking agent. Okay, cool. A couple of years ago. And it's been amazing to to have somebody in your corner working for you and helping you out. But it's also, there's been a transition of where we were getting pretty solid and pretty reliable with booking our kind of home turf markets, you know, the Wisconsin, Minnesota, upper Michigan, you know, our, our comfort zone, I guess. We were be able to, to lock that in pretty well. Then transitioning to working with the booking agent, he's getting us in a lot of new places, but just with less frequency i guess sure which is kind of the ultimately that's what you want to do right, you don't yeah. want to oversaturate exactly. the places that you're playing so it's been a process of kind of like you know the number of gigs per year went down a little bit when we started working with them but those gigs are getting better and we're gaining more traction with each of those gigs i think so it's all told it's been it's been super exciting and i'm stoked to to see what, what next year's bring. yeah that's awesome so let's let's go back to the beginning been a full-time musician or you know in the industry full-time for well, now over 10 years. Wow. <laughs> when did music become a part of your life in a way that you started like making it and not just listening to it? And what was that experience like? Honestly, it kind of, it feels like just like something I've always done. I started playing guitar in, in high school. So that, I guess that would have been the start. You know? Okay. Maybe it was right before high school. My dad's old high school buddy bought my brother and myself, my heavy younger brother, he bought us an acoustic guitar. Just because he's, you know, he's a big guitar player, played in bands, and and this was like his little gift to us to kind of bring us into his world a little bit, I guess. And I actually, I remember walking into my first guitar lesson. I, you know, never played before, didn't know how to play. And we got there a little bit early, and the guitar teacher was in one of the back rooms, and he must have been playing Metallica. So he was a big Metallica fan. Okay. But he, you know, I I hauled in this acoustic guitar, and that I was going to start playing, you know, acoustic music, but then I heard him banging out heavy riffs you know i didn't know what it was at the time but i heard it and i was like oh my god i want to do that 
you know? <laughs> so I remember that as a moment where like something clicked. I was like, that kind of pushed me in that direction of like, I want like heavy guitar or I want it to sound badass. You know, I want it to, 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 that's what I want. So that's like right away what I gravitated towards. And the acoustic guitar, I learned learned the chords and strumming patterns and stuff. But after that first day, I was committed. I, I got a job working at McDonald's, my first job, and I saved up enough money to buy an electric guitar and a guitar amp. And after that, I didn't touch an acoustic guitar for years, probably. It was just... Actually, I didn't go the metal route. I kind of veered more the punk rock route. Okay. I, I blamed some of my high school buddies for it. Sure. So I started a high school band, you know, with these other kids who likewise had no idea how to play anything, you know. And this is in Rhinelander. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, small town, we don't have a lot of opportunities to play shows or, I mean, for a long time, we were the only band among our high school group, you know, a peer group, I guess. There was... What was the name of that band? Just curious. Random Hero. Okay. <laughs> All right. And it was, you know, we were lousy, but we were writing songs and sure. we, were, we were playing shows in basements and in garages. And we even did a couple, you know, public shows with tickets and stuff with some other Northwoods, you know, regional bands, I guess, that were kind of, you know, in the in the punk rock or, you know, I don't know what you'd call it, I guess, post-hardcore kind of, okay. kind of style, I guess. And, you know, community centers and things like that. But I guess that would have been my first experiences of, of playing shows and, and playing out in front of people, going through the process of writing songs, recording them. And really, yeah, I kept on doing that until, you know, after high school, we kind of all went our separate ways. And I wound up going to University of Minnesota Duluth okay. for a couple of years. Wound up dropping out. That didn't go anywhere. Okay. But Duluth was, that was pivotal for me because I was there. I graduated in 05. So I was in Duluth, you know, 05, 06, 07, that was, and that was right when Trampled by Turtles was still playing the bars down there, mm -hmm. um, and Charlie Parr. And yeah. I got to see those guys at at a time when, you know, I had already kind of started to, I think, kind of like shift away from, you know, the, the rancid, no effects, you know, punk rock, bad religion, kind of, you know, that kind of stuff. And I was starting to like, you know, social distortion became a big thing for me then, and I think it was like, I don't know if it was like the the song content or or just like where he was coming from with the songwriting, but a lot of his stuff, he was drawn from country music a lot. Mm -hmm. And so I think that I kind of started to open myself up a little bit to like that style of songwriting instead of like the preachy, aggressive, anti-establishment kind of punk rock thing. You know, this, here was Mike Ness of Social Distortion talking about feelings and girls and, and, and heartbreak and this kind of stuff. I kind of started to open up to that a little bit then. And then going to Duluth, Trampled by Turtles, I saw those guys. And they were playing acoustic instruments, but with the energy of a punk rock band, you know. And that just, it clicked. It like something, it tripped a trigger in me somewhere that was like, okay, you can play balls to the wall, like fast, aggressive, energetic music on acoustic instruments. And... You can cover a lot more, a lot more territory, I think, creatively, just like the songwriting wise, you know, you can dive into a lot more areas, I think, than you could with what I had kind of cut my teeth on, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. And so you got into a band then playing that style of music? Well, not, not, not right away. I, I guess in, in Duluth, when I, you know, first got into contact with acoustic music being done at that at that level and in that way you know locally at the bars with small crowds of people like very it felt very diy and at that point i was still playing electric guitar i hadn't even considered like 
I haven't quite figured out how to integrate myself into this or how to bring it into my life or what, how to make sense of it even. Uh, but my roommate at the time, he bought a mandolin. And so it was around a lot. And he and I started jamming a little bit. And it was really slow. There was never like a point where I was like, oh my gosh, I got to do that. I need to get a mandolin. But it just kind of planted the seed that, you know, there was this whole other world of music and creativity that it just, it felt like somewhere where I wanted to go, something I wanted to explore. So I didn't wind up getting a mandolin for a couple of years after that, but I, that was definitely the the seed that started it. I think it, it happened in Duluth and it was Travel by Turtles and Charlie Parr and my roommate, Willie, who had a mandolin around and, and kind of was like, it may be, you know, it, it tripped a trigger. It, it kind of made something click that was like, there's a lot you can do with these acoustic instruments and you don't have to haul around a half stack, <laughs> you know? Yeah. At that point where you just like, open miking or what like how are you like how are you 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 meeting other musicians like you know that was at at that point like i said i i, I wound up dropping out of college and i think part of the thing at the, at that point in my life i wasn't playing actively bands i you know at, at that point i was just you know a living room guitarist more like earth and just i wasn't finding my track you know but the classic like you know post high school drifting not really sure what to do what you what you want to do with your life. I hadn't figured that out at all, you know? So I wound up dropping out of school and I, I moved back to Rhinelander, started just, you know, working, trying to make ends meet and stuff like that. But still playing music on the side. But yeah, yeah. So that's when, about that time is when I started picking, when I picked up the mandolin and started learning how to play it. And being back in Rhinelander, I reconnected with my group of friends that were there and connected with another guy who I hadn't, you know, met before. He was a few years older than I was. But we really connected over music. And he was a big Trampled by Turtles fan at the time. Okay. He, he, was, he had connections to the Duluth area through friends and, and stuff like that. So I actually, right about the time I went back to Rhinelander, I started playing music with a couple of my good friends. And then we eventually formed a band. And that was my first string band okay. called Ghost of Swinetown. And okay. that, was, that was in Rhinelander. I was playing mandolin, occasionally some acoustic guitar. And then the other guys were doing acoustic guitar and harmonica and banjo and kind of whatever we threw together but that was yeah it would have been like 2008 or 9 probably yeah so i guess that would have been when when i really started the string band thing and actually like working on the mandolin and trying to learn that and and, and using that as my main my main axe i guess yeah 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 so mandolin is an interesting instrument yeah you know i mean by the way that it looks and the the way that the strings are and all of that so just talk to me about the art of playing mandolin. Like the the hardest thing for me, like I'm still trying to figure this out because you know, growing up playing guitar and especially the kind of guitar I played, I was playing in punk bands. Like yeah. I played power chords and strummed the heck out of them, and that's about as far as I went. I never learned a guitar solo for years and years and years. It was all very simple and very sloppy. Mm -hmm. So my technique was lousy. You know, I played loud and fast and hard, and that that was good enough. You know. And so switching to mandolin, I just had to make all my motions smaller, you know, with my left hand, the fingering, you know, everything's smaller and tighter. Right hand, you know, with a strumming, everything's got to be tighter. And it, it just, it, it forced me to, to focus on my technique a little bit. I still have terrible technique. It's still, it's, it's still one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to work on more and more. But that was one of the big challenges is just making everything smaller and, and tightening it up. It's an acoustic instrument. You don't have you know, any effects or overdrive and you have nothing to hide it. 
mm-hmm. behind. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, there's no sustain with this instrument. So you have to modify your techniques in order to kind of mimic, in order to make more sound, in order to make the sound sustain, you have to, you know, use tremolo and some different techniques that I had never done before. So there was definitely a learning curve, but also, you know, playing a, a fretted string instrument for a number of years, it wasn't that hard to to learn the scales, learn the chords, and enough where I could get out and start playing. Did you take lessons, or do you have somebody like kind of... Not on the mandolin. I, you know, I took guitar lessons for about a month when I first started out back, you know, before high school, and that was the only formal training I guess I had. The rest I was, you know, learned enough to like figure out how to read tablature and look them up on the internet and, you know, started learning songs that way. And then for mandolin, it was just like, you know, I think I, I got like a couple instruction books or something like that that kind of talked about okay. fretboard patterns to make it a little bit easier to learn and to grasp and save myself a little bit of time rather than just, you know, banging away at it. But yeah, didn't take any lessons or, or anything like that. It was really just working with other musicians. I think at that point, that was really what, what got me going. I, had, I, had a, I should mention, I had a dear friend, Scott Kirby, who was this is about the same time that Ghost of Swine Town was starting to gig out a little bit. And he was um, also a Rhinelander musician who at that time was already full-time gigging, you know, as a solo artist and, and occasionally with other musicians. So he was out there doing it already. And he was kind enough to let me sit in with him. He had a weekly gig on Tuesday nights at this little tiny bar in Monaco called the Little Brown Jug. And he was kind enough to let me, like, before I could even play, like, looking back, like, I don't know why he would have ever let me join him because I was lousy, but I think he just, he wanted to support and wanted to help build the scene. And he was just that kind, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that generous that he let me sit in with him every week. And I played every Tuesday with him there for at least a couple of years. And these were, you know, four hour gigs at the minimum, you know, we were, this, this was a bar shift, you know, nine to, to bar close basically. And he would never come in there with a set list. This was all off the top of his head. He had a repertoire of songs that was just ridiculous. So he could go on for days and he would just throw songs. And I'd, I'd have to figure out what key we're in and then try to figure out where we're at. And I would have just try to chuck along as well as I could. And then eventually I could start noodling a little bit and playing some solos. But, you know, he was just very patient. And I mean, that's really where I learned how to play is, is with him, I think. I learned more in those those weekly gigs than I did in, in years of playing otherwise. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And also just like playing in front of people, right? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, that's a funny one too. We're like the Little Brown Jug, it's a tiny, tiny little bar. The stage is, it's so tiny, it's ridiculous. Yeah, listeners, if you haven't been to the Little Brown Jug, imagine a Little Brown Jug. It, right. You're, you're pretty much there. <laughs> you're, you're like, the stage is just like, a, you know, maybe eight inches off the floor yeah. in, in the corner. You could fit one person on there. Two would be a squeeze. And then when you're standing on the stage, the roof is like yeah. right above your head. I've been in there a few times. I remember the ceiling. The ceiling bows down. Yeah. So, you know, it, and <laughs> it's tiny. So when I when I would play with Scott, I wouldn't stand on the stage. I, I was over off to the side because I couldn't really fit up there with him. And I would always sit on a bar stool and... I was so shy and nervous and just not confident. I would sit there on this bar stool and play with my face just buried in my mandolin, just looking down, you know, no eye contact with Scott or with the audience at all. I was just playing with my head down, just please don't look at me, you know. (laughs) And one night, this old timer, Tuck Pence, Mm -hmm. also he played there every Wednesday and, Mm -hmm. and Scott played with him. He was kind of the guy that took Scott under his wing and Scott was just getting going. So one night Tuck came in. Toward the end of the night, 
to come and watch and, you know, support and stuff. And he was, he was a little tuned up, you know, I think he just got done with one of his gigs or something. And he, he was sitting in the back there for a while watching us. And, and at one point between songs, he came up and he's, he's like, you got to get up off that damn bar stool and stand boy. <laughs> and from that point on, I put away the bar stool and I played standing up. And that was, that was a game changer for me. He followed that up with, it's like, all right, you know, get rid of that bar stool first of all, and stand. You know, the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to put a fish hook through your nose. And I'm going to tie a line, run it to the back of the bar. And every time you're looking down at your mandolin, I'm going to yank it. <laughs> and and af- after that little interaction, that like that made me realize that you don't want to play a whole show staring down at your feet. You know, I'm like, you got to pick your head off. You got to see the room. You got to interact with the room a little bit. And I'm that's something again. I'm still terrible at it. I'm still working on it. But like that taught me how to carry yourself on stage, you know? That had to be a boost of confidence. Oh, yeah. Then, like, yeah. I'll come into who you become at that point, and yep. you feel a little bit more... It seen me when I started, and I, I I was lousy, you know? And and I was getting to the point where, you know, Scott and I had a, a number of songs that we could do well. We kind of knew our parts, and, and we, were, we were clicking, you know? And he noticed that and, and made a point to, to say so. So that, for me, at that point, that was huge. You know, Tuck's like... He's the guy in the Northwoods. He's been doing his thing there for so like decades and decades. And to hear that from him, that was that was huge. So the string band that you were in in Rhinelander, yeah. How long did that last? That was I think we started in in like 2009, and it was at least like three years or so we were doing that. And and that was that was the first project where I actually got paid to play music. Okay, you know that was or no, I shouldn't say that. I I, I think I was messing around with like a a bar band kind of thing, playing some guitar. A little bit here and there before that, but Ghost of Swine Town was the first project where we were writing songs. You know, we recorded some CDs, we were selling merchandise, we had T-shirts. You know, we you were doing the thing. Yeah, right. We we had you know the big thing for us at the time was we had started inviting other bands from out of town to play in our town, mm. and so that's how we connected ourselves with the greater scene, I guess, which had never happened before for me growing up in Rhinelander. Like I said, there just weren't opportunities, there weren't other players. We were kind of isolated in in our own little thing. And, you know, we'd started to get traction locally. We were hosting an open mic night. We were playing shows at the bars and stuff. But when we started inviting our friends that we were meeting at other festivals and stuff that we would go to, when we'd invite them to town, that's when things really started to get going. And we started to develop like a following. Like, you know, we could fill bars, throwing shows with our friends from out of town. Mm -hmm. You know, I wouldn't say we like put Rhinelander on the touring map by any means, but we started to get people from, you know, from Minneapolis, bands from Madison, bands from the Fox Valley, you know, bands from Duluth to come to Rhinelander. These were bands playing original music, a lot of string band music, but also a lot of, you know, different bands, so like different styles of music. They were writing songs, selling CDs, selling T-shirts, doing the thing. And a lot of people in our hometown had never seen that book, mm-hmm. you know, or, or certainly never seen it in Rhinelander. So that was a cool thing for us at that time to start kind of getting that trash in, in our hometown and building the street cred, I guess. Sure, sure. And then it was Dig Deep after that? No, after that, um, let's see, Ghost of Swine Town, 20, yeah, like 2011 or 2012, we kind of went our separate ways. And I was I was still playing with Scott, you know, pretty regularly. Still, I would still do the weekly thing with him, and, and occasionally as schedules worked, you know, I'd pick up shows with him on the weekends and stuff. So I, th- I think... After Ghost of Swine Town, I was I was sticking with him pretty much exclusively for for a stretch there, 
And then a friend of mine got in touch with me. Tell he let me know that this band was looking for a lead player. You know, they were looking for either mandolin or or guitar or, or violin. I think. Um, so I was like, "Hey, man, you probably would dig these guys. You should check them out. They're looking for a, a lead player." So I, I checked them out, and I was into like the sound and the style. And I looked at their schedule, and they had a ton of shows. I was like, "That's what I want. I want to work. I want to play." So. Um, it was a band called the Ditch Runners, out of based out of Stevens Point at the time. So I drove down there, tried out. It clicked. It worked, and and you know, within a couple of days, I was involved with those guys, and we were hitting the road, and and that was I I just kind of jumped right into a rolling active machine at that point. So the Ditch Runners, then I was I was in with that project until Dig Deep. So mm-hmm. that's how I met the Dig Deep guys, as they all were in the Ditch Runners. We were all in the Ditch Runners together, and then broke away from that and started Dig Deep. Okay, and the Ditch Runners, was that bluegrass? Similar, I, I guess. So the, the Ditch Runners, the instrumentation was, you know, I, I was playing mandolin. Alex, the acoustic guitar player in Dig Deep, he was playing acoustic guitar with the Ditch Runners. Um, we had a bright bass drummer, and the drummer was like dyed-in-the-wool metalhead. Mm. Double-kick drum, like he was a straight-up metalhead. And then we had a, a dedicated lead singer, and the lead singer, he had a great voice, just like pipes for days. And just all the charisma of a of a front man, you know. He was, you know, black eyeliner, oh wow, pink mohawk, and I mean patches, like the whole deal. But he could he could sing and croon country music, and you know, so I definitely would not have called it a, a bluegrass or a country band or anything like that. But we did dip into like the outlaw country a lot, and you know, some of the bluegrass repertoire a little bit, but some of that string band outlaw country feel, but played by a bunch of guys that used to play in pumpkins and metal bands and stuff like that. So. Honky talking gypsy gutter grass is what we went with on the on the on the posters. <laughs> I have not heard that genre before. Oh, we made that one up. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. And he, and so the ditch runners and dig deep overlap at all, or is there just a no? No, there was there was a break. There was you know some uh, some discord. I, I don't okay. won't get too too much into it, but the the four of us decided pretty abruptly to step away from that project and form dig deep and, and to be honest you know they're before the 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 discord i guess there we've been kind of leaning in the direction of you know we kind of wanted to get away from a little bit of the, of what we had been doing with the ditch runners and kind of you know we were thinking of just going the string band route you know like mm-hmm. thinking like you know working without a drummer might be it would allow us to slim things down play smaller rooms give us a little bit more flexibility in terms of, of booking and the kind of gigs we could take and so we've been kind of feeling like, you know, it might be nice to go the string band route, slim it down, change it up a little bit for a while. And then things kind of blew up and it made the decision really easy for us. So we all, you know, very quickly, the four of us stepped away from the ditch runners, started dig deep. And really, we were lucky because, you know, we we had to cancel a lot of gigs, a lot of the ditch runners gigs that we had on the books. But a lot of those places, you know, we we knew these people on a first name basis. So they're like, yeah, bring, bring in the new band, you know, yeah, so, yeah. Starting off with a new project right away, we were really lucky to have opportunities to go out and play, you know, right away. And that was primarily started in, in Stevens Point, right? Yeah. You started yep. digging in Stevens Point? Yeah, yeah. This would have been, you said, 2015? Yeah, yeah, 2014, 2015, thereabouts, yeah. Okay. Where were you playing in Stevens Point? Brickhouse was, uh, was a fun one. We had some awesome, awesome Brickhouse shows. Let's see. Oh, man. I mean, we've played... 
you know, some of the coffee shops, sure. you know, MEJs has always been good to us there. We, we played there a few times. Some like the outdoor events, you know, okay. like Riverfront Rendezvous and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. You know, they've been really good to us. And, you know, like I said, you know, I think before we started recording, Stevens Point is kind of an incubator of, of string bands. Oh, yeah, yeah. So who else was in the scene at that point? Like, who were you sharing bills with? Who were you jamming with? Oh, who were you yeah. getting inspired by? I mean, the Jack Pine Jamboree scene was huge, and that's that still is huge. Like, right. we go to Jack Pine every single year. We block that weekend off every year, mm-hmm. and that's like, we love that. We love those people. We love the music there. And I think early on and when we were doing the, the Ditch Runners and the Dig Deep stuff, that was a big deal. It actually, I mean, that that's where, I think that's where, I don't know if I, I saw 357 String Band there for the first time, but I, I remember seeing the 357 String Band at Jack Pine. I think that was my first time seeing them now that I think about it. That was another big one. And, you know, I know for a fact the other guys in Dig Deep will point to 357 String Band as like the catalyst for us being, you know, ex-punk rockers and metalheads to try the string band thing and and to realize just how powerful and aggressive and shredding, you know, string band music can be. And I think the Jack Pine scene is what kind of connected us with that. You know, those guys are from Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. And... You know, they were kind of, I think they disbanded about that same time as we were getting going. They were kind of going their own separate ways. Yeah, I think I think the Jack Pine family, that was that was a really big one for us because that it connected us with a lot of other players in the music scene, the Sloppy Joe folks, you know, and a lot of the players, like the the older, more traditional players, like, you know, Art Stevenson and stuff mm-hmm. like that, like all those guys, just the best players and just so supportive and kind even though we weren't playing traditional bluegrass music they saw you know young people getting into string band music and they were supportive and they were encouraging and they would give us those opportunities you know to to play for you know their festival crowd and that like that was huge in terms of helping us build out that local following there for sure yeah and you start a band you you start gigging you know there's that part of it where you just want to focus on the music and the creative side yeah. of making music, but there's a necessity to also have somebody or maybe the whole band kind of step up and fill that business side. For sure, yeah. Uh, so what was that process like? Well, to tell you the truth, again, I was really lucky in that way to just jump in with with the Ditch Runners at that time. Sure. Like I said, they had a full schedule. They were rocking and rolling. Yep. I was able to just jump jump in the van and like, hey, let's uh-huh. go, you know. I'll just show up with my mandolin. Yeah, yeah. But the guy who was making that work was Alex. Okay. You know, the guy who plays guitar and dig deep now, he was the booking mastermind. And, and okay. so, and then, you know, when I was working with Ghost of Swine Town, I was handling a lot of that too. So I was starting to learn the booking end of things. And that was also about the same time I, I got going with Mountaintop. Mm-hmm. And so working with other bands, throwing shows, throwing festivals, just working that, that booking and business end of things. I'd gotten a little taste of that. And then Alex with the Ditch Runners and then, you know, likewise, Dig Deep, he was a master at it. He was such a hard worker and just, he, he had a knack for it. You know, he's really good at it. So mm-hmm. like with the Ditch Runners, we did a number of tours, like national tours. There was one we played like 29 shows in 30 days, wow. 17 states. Like it was a rip. And he booked that entirely independently. Like he was calling up venues himself, sending out emails. You know, a lot of these places, like, hitting them up cold, you know, and sending them the press kit, doing the whole pitch, you know, mm-hmm. working at, working out pay and negotiating, doing the whole deal for these big tours on occasion. And then, you know, just filling the calendar as much as he could. He was a booking badass for sure. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the recording process, you know. Yeah. That's different. You know, some musicians, they prefer the stage over the studio and so I, I, I think i'm one of those guys yeah I, I do enjoy the studio but it's a challenge and i think that's why i like it i enjoy the challenge 
But, you know, like I was saying before, I'm, I'm a sloppy player, you know, and, and playing live, you can get away with that. But in the studio, you hear that, that stuff. And so it puts a magnifying glass on your tone and your technique and, you know, your tempo. That's another thing. Like, I'm not a guy that sits at home and practices with a metronome. I should be. <laughs> but I just never gotten that habit. And so once you when you go in the studio, you just got to tighten everything up. You know, so it's a good challenge, but it, it's, it is a challenge for me, for sure. Right. And so when you guys recorded your first album, you already had obviously a ton of experience playing with these guys from, yeah. from Ditch Runners. What was that process like? And how many albums do you all have now? With Dig Deep, we have, we've released two albums and an, and an EP. Okay. And actually, before the first Dig Deep album, Alex and Pete, the guy who was playing upright bass with us at the time, and myself, we recorded kind of a demo, I guess, with just the three of us while we were still with the Ditch Runners. But these were songs that Alex had written that didn't quite fit with the Ditch Runners thing. And like I'd mentioned, we were kind of like starting to move in that string band direction anyway, or at least thinking that creatively that's where we wanted to go. So those actually became Dig Deep songs eventually. We re-recorded them and put them on the first Dig Deep CD. So that one was pretty spur of the moment. You know, Alex just had the, the small handful of songs. He's like, you know, I'd like to get these recorded, but it's not going to be a Ditch Runners thing. So we had a, a buddy and in, in one of Pete's friends, actually, in, in Wanakee, had a basement studio. You know, again, this guy used to play metal bands mm-hmm. and stuff like that with Pete back in the day or whatever. Now he works at the hospital for a day job, but does, you know, recording on the side just in his basement. So we went down, worked with him, and it was pretty easy and painless. But educational, for sure. What did you learn? <laughs> it was, again, just like the the magnifying glass over your playing. I was not accustomed to that. And I'd recorded stuff before, but for some reason, it felt like a little more, I don't want to say more important, but like, like I really didn't want to mess this up. You know, like I always felt invested in the other projects and everything like this, but you know, when I'd recorded with my other bands before, it, I was not yet a full-time professional musician, mm-hmm. you know? So now this is how I'm making my living. This is how I'm paying rent and eating and stuff. And this recording that we're working on right now, this is what we're going to use to open up doors. And this mm-hmm. is what we're going to use to help us progress and, and build the following and build the business, you know? So it there was a little bit more weight to it. Some pressure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But again, it was good pressure and it was a good challenge and it it felt like i was i had to level up and i think i did i think we all did it was the first time alex had ever done any singing okay to speak of he'd done like backup vocals and hollers and this and that but this was the first time he'd done lead vocals on songs that he had written so for him it was a big leap you know and i think collectively we kind of felt that together it was like this is this is a different project this is serious and and if we nail it if we can do it well it's gonna do good things for us yeah you know and it did. It actually like gave us that confidence. Once we finished the project and we listened to it and we started sharing it with people, they responded. So, wow, okay, we can do this. This is a good thing. And I think without that initial demo CD, Dig Deep might not have happened because we might not have had that confidence. Mm-hmm. You know, we were relying on those gigs to, like I said, to pay rent and eat, you know. And if we would have had to step away and just not have a project to move into right away. I don't know if we would have done that. You know, we I don't know if we would have been able to take that risk of like clearing the schedule and starting from scratch. Yeah. You no, know, but we had this in our pocket. We're like, we have material, we can do this. People like it. So I think we can manage this, you know. And there were hiccups, there were challenges for sure, but we had that measure of confidence and that that measure of agency that to like, okay, we got this. Yeah. 
That's awesome. Yeah. Now you're eight years in, eight, nine years in. Yeah. And I mean, you guys are clearly one of the more well-known, you know, string bands in Wisconsin. Did you see that coming? Was that the plan all along? Again, I, I feel like it's something that, you know, I could probably say the same thing for the rest of the guys in the band. It's just, we've just always been doing this. It's sure to know. Sure. I, I kind of laugh because I, I feel like, and there's nothing wrong with this, but I think a lot of bands, especially when they start later in life, they go into a project with like an idea of the sound they're going for mm-hmm. and the style and the vibe they want and, and all this stuff. And we didn't have that at all. You know, like we just kind of kept on doing what we've always been doing, you know, and it, it was... I think we discovered our sound as it as we kind of went along, and and it kind of tightened up in, into this thing that that is recognizable. But we never went into it with like, okay, this is how we're going to approach it. This is how we're going to sound. This is these are the influences we're bringing in. It was it's more just, hey, I wrote a song. You want to hear it? <laughs> no, it was a lot less deliberate than you know than anything else. And so the songwriting process is it kind of spread out throughout the band, or is most of the material coming from one person, or what's what's that like? So it's been pretty spread out. I, Alex has done the bulk of it, for sure, but we've all contributed. On the first album, yeah, I think on the first album, those were all Alex's songs. On our, our self-titled Dig Deep debut, those were all Alex's songs, again, with a couple carryovers from that demo that we did earlier. After the first album, we released The Lot of Morgan, which is one that I wrote. It's one song, but it's a big, long song. It's about 11 minutes long and kind of in, in movements, I guess. Mm-hmm. So that was one that I wrote. Alex does the bulk of the singing on that one, but I, I wrote the lyrics and put the song together. And then on our most recent release, Heavy Heart, Oscar contributed a couple songs on that one. So he contributed, you know, songwriting, singing. So really, like, all told, it's it's been pretty cooperative, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, Bob, I mean, music's clearly a huge part of your life. Yeah. Like, Dare I even say it is your life? It is. hundred <laughs> percent, yeah. And then it's maybe seems like a strange question, but why? You know, what does music mean to you? And it's clearly led you to a fulfilling life enough to keep doing it. Yeah. And honestly, I've, I, I wish I had a better answer, but it just it just feels like something I've always done and I've always had it. I've always needed it and I've always used it. So I can't really imagine. I'm stupid blessed and stupid lucky to be able to do this and actually, you know, make a living at it because literally I would be doing this anyway. Yeah. You know, if I wasn't making any money, I would still be doing this just because I love it and I, I need it. You know, it's, uh-huh. it's how I express myself. It's how I connect with people. Growing up, I've, I've been, and still now, like I've always been awkward and introverted and and just like people and social things has never been my forte. You okay. Know? Like I, I, a lot of times I feel like speaking human is like my second language. And I was born on a different planet. Okay. <laughs> but music is my way to connect with people and feel comfortable and kind of like break the ice or like it's a shared language. You know, it's a, sure. a cliche, but yeah. it absolutely is. And, and for somebody who's struggled in the past with, connecting with people and expressing myself and understanding people and being understood music is is this this medium that makes all that easier you know you can communicate with it you can relate to people with it and you can express so much more than you're actually saying and and it's that 
for me has been such a huge thing in, in, in terms of getting what I need to feel like a fulfilled human in my life, you know? Well, that's awesome to hear that that's one way that you've been able to use music, you know, I mean, there's multiple ways there, but connecting with people and expressing yourself. Have there been any particular times in your life where, you know, just challenges that you needed to overcome in your personal life that yeah. music has really helped you to kind of overcome? I mean, the, the things that come to mind right off the top of my head are like we've, they were not fun playing opportunities, but we've played some funerals and some celebrations of life okay. from, you know, dear friends of ours that have passed away early. And those are probably some of the most healing and transformational musical experiences. Again, not, not like in a, in a really positive rainbow and sunshine kind of way, but we were grieving hard over some dear friends that we lost early. And, you know, we used music, you know, at a time where like, we didn't know what to say to each other. We didn't know how to, how to grieve together, but music gave us this thing that we could do together at this really hard time to kind of work through that, you know? And one of these was, was for our, our dear friend, Owen Mays, who he went on one of those big ditch runners tours with us. He was a dear friend. We recorded with him. And at his funeral, I mean, he was the guy that toured all over the country. He had musical friends from all over the place. And they all came, you know, to to celebrate his life. And so that was like, we got to play and we, we got to play with all these other players that we connected with on the road and seen at festivals before, but never really get to have everybody in the same place, you know. And, you know, just getting to share a few songs and in that kind of setting was, it was really important. You know, you that's that's like one of those moments where you feel like the actual the real power of music to like do some really heavy stuff for people together. Mm -hmm. Again, it, it wasn't a fun thing, but that stands out in my mind. It's just pretty important, I guess, for me and I think for us. Yeah, it helped kind of soften, you know, a really hard experience. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, as you're talking about this, I just reflect on moments of grief in my life and I, i'm not a musician but i yeah. definitely lean into music and i think a lot of people do absolutely know? it's a really powerful force yep and you know from our end as musicians that's another thing that those experiences kind of opened my mind up to is that you know those like sharing music it, it's good and cathartic and healthy for us as we're grieving but also i'd never been in that role of like somebody who's sharing music with other people to help them Mm -hmm. You know, so while we were kind of helping each other and helping ourselves by just playing music and, and honoring our friends, we were in the room with other people, non-musicians who are also grieving, also struggling, and we were able to help them. Mm -hmm. I'd never experienced that before. And that was, that was huge. You know, that again, one of those moments, one of those experiences where you feel the power of what music can do, you know? Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it takes a lot to be able to perform in a mindset like that, but the, you said it yourself, you know, you can tell how much it was helping people. Yeah. I don't know. It's helping yourself as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So you've been doing this now like full time, 10 years. I'm sure you've learned a lot of lessons. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Are there any that come to mind where you're just like, you know, I, I wouldn't have learned this if I hadn't jumped in or been so serious about music and 
you know, you talk about the pressure that you're putting on yourself for like, well, this is what I'm going to be doing anyway. So I better figure out a way to use it to help me eat and yeah. pay rent and things yep. like that. You know, any lessons that come to mind that you've learned that would be helpful for other musicians to hear? Discipline, for one, is something I have never been good at. I still suck at it. That is like the I'm the worst at any any kind of activity that requires discipline. I'm just, oh, can't do it. But doing this like you have to again mm-hmm. like if if you're not putting in the work at home you're not going to have a product to take on the road and if you don't have something to sell at mm-hmm. the end of the day you're not able to make that business work you know so you, when you quit the job when you when you dive in you know i'm going to do this full time it puts the pressure on and it, it requires a measure of discipline that i had to learn and i had to develop and again I, you know i was really lucky to get involved with people early on that were disciplined and did have those skills that I could see like, okay, that's how it's done. You know, I had, I had some really good role models and that was, that was really helpful. So a piece of advice being just like lean into those relationships. Yeah. Well, and I guess that would be the other learning thing is it's sunk in, you know, when opportunities come up, don't think about it too hard. Mm -hmm. You know, like a lot of these opportunities come by quick and if you don't jump on, they're gone, you know, and I like joining up with the Ditch Runners was one of those things that ultimately connected me with the, the Dig Deep guys and this whole bluegrass acoustic string band scene. I just had to hit them up. You know, they were they were looking for players. They were trying out players. And I had a span of a few days where if I didn't send them that message and go down there and try out, I was going to miss that. Yeah. So and I, I didn't know any of these guys. I had no idea what I was getting into. But I was like, I'm not going to sit around. And, and that's kind of uncharacteristic for me, because as long as I can remember. I'm not one to dive into stuff. Mm-hmm. I've got to get it all figured out, make sure it's all sorted and then okay before I commit to it. And I've started learning to kind of like quiet that voice in my head that wants to say, oh, no, 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 wait, 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 let's think about this, you know, and to channel some of that confidence and that, you know, that energy to just, when you see something that that's, you got to hop on that train, otherwise it's going to be gone. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really important piece of advice. Don't overthink it. Yeah, exactly. It's almost like you just kind of got to lean into the feeling. Yeah, you know? I learned that honestly. I, I learned that from my brother, my younger brother, who's who's always had that as a, as a gift. I think is he he sees opportunities and he's able to to jump on them when they come. I think once you get in that habit, it's almost like the opportunities start to come to you. You know, almost like you, you know you kind of manifest those opportunities in in a certain way. Once you start grabbing the opportunities and you start moving. With that momentum and that confidence, more opportunities come and you're more quickly able to grab onto them and to take advantage of them. Yeah, man. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. Yeah, exactly. It comes easier. You get more opportunities coming. It's easier to recognize them, recognize the good ones and recognize the bad ones. You know, mm-hmm. It becomes easier and it, it becomes a habit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So speaking of opportunities and jumping into things like you know dig deep is eight nine years in now mm-hmm. what's the goal like what does success mean <laughs> for dig deep Maybe honestly you as a musician we always joke that like we've already made it man you know <laughs> we, we get to we get to play shows for people that enjoy and appreciate our music you know and, and we get to obviously be nice to get paid more for for the gigs or whatever to sell more cds sell more t-shirts or whatever so i maybe in terms of goals like you want to grow the business or whatever but honestly like we get to do the fun stuff already you know mm-hmm. it's, it's it's a blessing and we don't take that lightly you know it's we we see that and we appreciate that but that being said as far as goals and and where we want to go and what we want to do really just 
crank out more albums and start to widen our tour radius to where work our way up those festival lineups a little bit. And I'd like to just see a couple more albums. I, I you know, ideally we could just keep, keep on writing albums, you know, mm-hmm. forever, but really just, I'd like to keep on writing music, developing and growing as a band and, and being able to write better songs and play better shows and just get to share that with more people, just expanding that tour radius Mm-hmm. And, you know, just reaching, reaching more ears. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not very, it sounds terrible, but I'm not like super goal or achievement oriented, I guess, in terms mm-hmm. of, of music or really anything for that matter. All I want out of life is to be happy and to contribute. And I get to do that right now. So yeah. as long as I can keep doing that and, and you know, help the business grow and, and support us all respectively in our lives and then, you know, allow us to do outside of music what we want to do. I don't have any like hard goals other than just like make more music and play for more people. Yeah. I mean, what about the band? Is is there an aspiration to get like signed or play a particular venue or anything like that? I mean, I don't think any of us really look at it in terms of like, it would be awesome to play, you know, I'd love to play Big Top Chautauqua or something like okay. that. That'd be a cool one. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. It's like there are stages or events or festivals like, yeah, that'd be, that'd be killer if we could get that opportunity. Mm-hmm. I know for a fact we could all be very, very happy playing for years without, you know, if we don't check those boxes or whatever. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there's any, you know, any specific festivals or, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. I'd like to tour Europe someday. Okay. You know, yeah. Just because, okay. like, I've traveled over there before. I think that'd be fun to, you know, hit the room with the guys and share our stuff with an audience that's, you know, not American. I think that'd be a hoot. Yeah. And we have friends that have done that before. And, and there's, you know, there's a scene and a culture for string band music and American music. So yeah, that would be kind of cool. Yeah. Other than that, just keep at it. I'd like, I'd like to play more festivals outside of the Midwest. You know, I think that would be a big one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I guess the, uh, you know, a big goal for us right now in the, in the, in the near future is we'd like to team up with some other artists for tours. Gotcha. You know, maybe some, some artists there at a tier or two above where we're at, join them on the road for a stretch so we can not just open up for a band one night, but support them for a number of nights on a tour, play for their audiences and try to win over some of their fans. I think that would be a good opportunities for us to get that position of support for a well-established artist that that fits well with us and to have that time on the road with them, I think would be really cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a sign to me that you had to think about those goals. It's a sign that you're, you're really grounded in what you're doing right now. You're a really happy individual. I'm super happy. To, you know, and again, you know, there's ups and downs and there's hiccups and stuff, but I love what I do. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm stupid lucky. To get to do this and to get to do this with the guys in my band and the guys and gals, I mean, amazing people in the scene, mm-hmm. you know, like we're so lucky. I'm beyond happy to be able to do this. You know, anything else that comes after anything extra, it's all gravy. Right. You know, that's awesome. So in this part of, of your career and your life, you know, what is the most important thing that you want listeners to this podcast to know about you or dig deep it could be you as a musician you as a person i think right here is where i'd like to drop a little mention i don't want to get too too preachy or 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 whatever about it but i gave up alcohol five years ago okay congratulations thank you thank you yeah i just hit the five-year mark not too long ago and i i never would have done that if i hadn't been in close proximity to pete our old bass player and he's been he's been alcohol free for over a decade now i think 
And without Pete, I would have never seen somebody in the music business that doesn't drink. Like mm-hmm. it just never even occurred to me that you could do this kind of work without drinking. And mm-hmm. like, you know, our job is to sell alcohol. So how do you make a party and get people all, you know, how do you do that without alcohol? But he showed me that like it is indeed possible. And not only is it possible, but there are tons and tons and tons of musicians and people in the music industry that have gone that route, you know? And so for me, everybody has their own reasons. Aaron doesn't drink that much. Alex and Oscar drink. Everybody has their own rhythms and and their own needs. And for some people, it works. For some people, it doesn't. For me, it wasn't working. It was getting in my way. And there were people in the scene, in the community that I could reach out to, that I could connect with to kind of help me figure out how to do that, how to like have a life without alcohol or how to be in the music business without alcohol and how to still do my job and like make people party and have fun. And, and, Mm -hmm. you know, it took a little while figuring it out and there were, there were challenges and stuff, but five years later now, I can't imagine not making that decision. And so I guess what I, what I would like to share, I guess, or what I would like folks to kind of take away is that whether it's drugs or, or alcohol or, I mean, any kind of bad habit, really, there are alternatives. It's never going to be easy, but it is a lot of times, I think, easier than people think, especially if you're able to connect with other people who are on that journey of recovery and to just like know that there's people out there, mm-hmm. you know, that's especially at a, at a festival like this or something, you know, I like folks to know that I'm not a drinker mm-hmm. because then maybe they can feel comfortable. If there's somebody in the back who this is their first festival where they're not drinking and they're feeling awkward and shifty and it's kind of like, oh man, I don't know. I don't want to be here. It's like, it's okay. You know, we've, we got you. And yeah. So I, I, if anybody's listening that is on the journey of recovery or has been thinking about it, just know that like, it's cool. There's a lot of us that are on that journey on different stages of that journey or coming at it from different places, coming at it for different reasons. But there's a lot of us out here and it's a very welcoming community, a very supportive community. And like, really like, we got you come out to a show. Don't be afraid to do that. And don't be afraid to reach out. You know, like I had lots of conversations with people that are thinking about recovery or have actually made the decision and might be struggling. I love sharing my story about that. I feel kind of like I have an obligation to do that because there were people in my life that helped me out like that early on. So it's like, it's the least I can do. Yeah. You know, forward. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's, again, it sounds cliche, but I wouldn't be here doing this if other people hadn't been there for me in that way. So if there's anybody out there who's listening and winds up at a dig deep show or something like that, like, give me a holler. Like, let's, let's chat. You know, I'm always down to support and help however I can. You know, I'm, I'm not a miracle doctor or anything like that, but you can sit and chat. And sometimes that, that's all, that's all you need. Just somebody to sit there with you and be like, you know, Hey, me too, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard, but we got you. We're in it together. Yeah. That's really cool, Bob. Thank, Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Absolutely. Really cool. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Likewise. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. It's been a treat. Yeah. So listeners, get yourself to a Dig Deep show if you haven't yet. These guys have a ton of fun. And now you can look at Bob on the stage when he's got his head down. <laughs> pull that, you pull that pull, freak from the lamber string. <laughs> you see him grabbing his nose. You know what it's from. Tuck <laughs> pence. Yep. Yep. Uh, yeah. Thanks so much, man. This is great. Thanks for listening to the Musician's Venture Podcast. 
please leave ratings and reviews from wherever you're listening from. Check us out online at themusiciansventure.com for more information on what we have happening, to find past episodes, and ways to get in touch with us. Find us on social media at The Musicians Venture on Facebook and Instagram, and at Musician Venture on Twitter. Like and follow us on all those platforms, and hey, while you're there, engage with and share our content with your friends. The Musicians Venture Podcast is hosted by me, Nick O'Brien, with guest host appearances from Allison M. The podcast is produced by Shannon Coulard, with theme music by Mike Neumeyer. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>